Have you ever been in a situation where you thought you saw someone who was famous, but you weren't sure? A celebrity. Maybe it looked like them, but they were sort of out of context, and you were tempted to go up to them and say, are you such and such? Of course, you know, who would do that? I'm not talking about people that you know. People that you're like, yeah, that's certainly the person because uh, living where we do here um, and the Chicago Bulls used to be here, the, the Bears are nearby, you, you're, you can always run into somebody. I still remember a breakfast uh, at Walker Brothers where I sat next to Mike Ditka, who was in the next table. There was no question that was him. But sometimes we see people like, I, maybe that's, you know. There's a story about Queen Elizabeth of England who, um, you know, I mean, her life is very separate from people, right? I mean, they have their own life, but sometimes she gets tired of that. And one time she just, she put on a scarf, a headscarf, tied it really tight, and went to the local grocery store. And she was wandering the shelves, just looking around, trying to act like just a normal person. And a woman approached her, and she thought, oh, here it comes. And she says, my dear, has anyone ever told you that you look like the queen? <laughs> and her response was, well, thank you. Keep that in mind. We're coming back to this idea of identity and the importance of identity. Today on the church calendar is the feast day for John the Apostle. So it's highly appropriate that for our gospel reading here on this first Sunday after Christmas, we have this beautiful masterpiece, the prologue to John's gospel on the life of Jesus. We could review a minute, right? John, he was a Galilean fisherman. He was brother to James. He was son of Zebedee. He was a son of thunder. He was the beloved disciple. He's the evangelist of the divinity of Christ and his fraternal love. With James, his brother, and Simon Peter, he was one of the witnesses of the transfiguration. At the Last Supper, he's the one who leans into Jesus. At the foot of the cross, Jesus entrusts his mother to his care. After that, his leadership was likely centered in Ephesus, and he became the pastor-theologian to churches in Asia Minor. John was exiled to the island of Patmos under the Emperor Domitian. Perhaps he was the youngest apostle, but he's the only one to die from natural causes. We have this gospel, we have his three letters, we have the book of Revelation, and when medieval scribes assigned symbols for the gospel writers, John was shown as an eagle because of his lofty vision. Now, as you might imagine, there have been theories about other authors of the fourth gospel. Thomas, Lazarus, John Mark, even Mary Magdalene. Yet scholars, both ancient and modern, continue to attribute the gospel to St. John. His eyewitness intimacy of the life of Jesus, his poetic insight, give us a beautiful as well as truthful telling of the life of Jesus. And they set up John for his special role in the story of the church as a source of inspiration to those who are drawn to mystery and artistry and the sacraments. Skeptics uh, find it hard to believe that a fisherman wrote such high and lofty prose and poetry. But to say, I once had a farmer friend who wrote amazing poetry on the windows of his tractor with a grease pencil whenever inspiration took him. <laughs> so today we're with John the Apostle. And it's his day after all. It's also Christmas. Well, not Christmas Day, but the Christmas season, which will extend until January 6th, Epiphany. This is the one Sunday that we have uh, in the midst of that Christmas season, and it's bracketed on the calendar by the feast day for St. Stephen, 
yesterday, which is officially the first martyr of the church, and also the day the church recalls the holy innocents this Tuesday, who were martyrs in their own right. Christmas has within it wonderful joys, but also it reflects deep pain, something that we may have a better sense of in this year of all years. It is Christmas, but John does not give us a Christmas story. At least, he doesn't give us a birth narrative. John is the theologian of Christmas. He tells us what it means and how important it is to all of our life. Mark begins his gospel with John the Baptist. Luke, with all that surrounds the birth of Jesus. Matthew goes back a little bit and he begins with genealogies. But John, John goes back further than all of them. He starts at the beginning. He starts in the beginning. These first 18 verses of his gospel are known as the prologue. And the themes that he lays out in poetic form, like a hymn, are the themes that will be explored throughout his gospel. Light and life and grace and truth, belief, unbelief, the close relationship between Jesus and the Father. All of these things are here and, they'll, and we'll see them through the, the chapters of his gospel. This writing has a beauty to it, a compelling rhythm of language that's caused it to be included in many literary anthologies. And it is beautiful literature, but it's so much more. Now, it's a little daunting to think about one sermon <laughs> tackling this. The breadth and the height and the depth of the prologue. Um, how could that be accomplished? Well, it's not going to be accomplished, at least not by me this morning. But you know, there are paintings, right, where you only get the real sense by backing up and away and seeing it in kind of a larger scope. There is a lot of detail to mine here, but there's also a richness when we try to take it all in of a piece and just look at certain things that are going on. Mostly I want us to think about what this prologue says to us at this place, in the kind of year we've had, and the kind of year we hope to have going forward into 2021. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus is the one who reveals God. John wants us to have the assurance that that revelation is reliable. It's trustworthy. So the prologue at one level is really about the identity of Jesus, declaring his identity. This is who he is. This is where he comes from. This is why he speaks the truth and why we want to listen, to follow him and believe in him. And John's very consistent with, with the intention of this gospel from the very beginning. At the end of the gospel, he writes this. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, he's already told us that. Right here at the start, just using more open and poetic language. In his first letter that he writes, he begins it by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. I mean, this is very personal. This is from the heart of one who was close to Jesus, who walked with him and wants us to know that the story that he's telling us is absolutely true. John is insisting that Jesus is God's Messiah, his only Son, and that he existed with God from the beginning. 
And it was through him that all things were made and sustained. He wasn't just associated with God. In other words, he wasn't sort of near God or had kind of a a divine uh, identity in his own right. No, he was God from the very beginning. John describes him as the Word. At least that's the English word we have. The Word. The Logos. And I think we, we tend, when we hear this, we tend to think of it as a written word. Because we're very textual people, right? We're kind of um, post-enlightenment and all of that, and we think a word means something we look at that's written down. And if we stay there with that definition, we'll miss the depth and the energy of what John is saying. John is not talking about the Bible. Now, it has, it has authority on its own right. But he's talking about the eternal expression, the idea, the message of the Father. So if we happen to get stuck on thinking of it as a written word, then I would encourage us to follow the example of the second century theologian Irenaeus, who put it this way, in the beginning was the sound, and the sound was with God, and the sound was God. And everything has been sounded into being. Then we go on to learn that this logos, this expression, the sound actually came to us. He was born. He entered our world, a world that was made through him. Wow, it's a wonderful truth and one that challenges us because it's hard to get our minds around that. Martin Luther declared, it is beyond human understanding. So we can approach it, but we can't fully grasp it. He is God. And not only that, he is enfleshed. He is incarnate. He is God with us. Now, this would be a problem for Judaism because that could only consider God in one person. It was also a problem for the Greeks whose philosophy required them to keep spirit and matter separated. And you may know it was a problem for the church that wrestled with the reality of the incarnation for centuries and finally sort of wrapped it up, I guess, in the 4th century and continued to play with it a little bit. But in the Nicene Creed, we have that. We have the assurance of that belief. But John is clear. He's concise. His words are carefully chosen. This is who Jesus is, he says. He's not leaving it up to us to work it out. I mean, we call this Christology, don't we? That's the study of who is Jesus. What is the work that he has done? What is our response to him? Theologian Dan Migliori says that faith in Christ is not just knowing about him, but trusting in him and being ready to follow him as the way, the truth, and the life. The real point of Christology is to affirm that in this Jesus, God is decisively present and graciously active for the salvation of the world. This presses on sort of the popular notion that so many people have of Jesus, that of being a good man, of being a, a noble and moral teacher. John says, you can't think that. <laughs> you can't think that and stop there. And so we, we hear it again in the Christmas season. We want to be reminded of this, that our faith depends on our assent to this, but also our embracing of this with our whole lives. In the prologue, John tells us who Jesus is, tells us where he comes from, and we're told why it matters. So that we might become children of God, recipients of his grace and truth. 
is so the creation, that which starts with in the beginning, can be redeemed. It's so we can be assured that his revelation of the Father, with whom Jesus is in the closest relationship, is reliable. Reliability and trustworthiness is key here. Because in our time, we are slowly and dangerously losing our sense of what can be called truth. I mean, people make truth claims now with no basis in reality. Wild claims going on right now in our society. News outlets who spin competing and contrasting narratives. It seems like so little of what we hear is tied to anything real. In fact, in the virtual world, we have to ask, what is reality? John says, this is not just an idea. It's not just a concept. You can trust this. It's true. It's real. It's concrete. And it is here. Vernon Grounds was the longtime president of Denver Seminary. And he once told about an intense public debate between an atheist and a Christian. On the blackboard behind the podium, the atheist had printed in large capital letters, God is nowhere. When the Christian rose to offer his rebuttal, he rubbed out the W at the beginning of where and added that letter to the preceding word, no. The statement read, God is now here. The prologue also is clear that this truth is resisted. All right? Jesus comes to his own. They didn't recognize him. They did not receive him. For John, the reality of Jesus' glory is found in the cross. That's where this is headed. There will be pain. There will be rejection. There will be opposition. There will be trials and struggles. But the light of his life will overcome it. It will do so in ways that were not anticipated. The incarnation is a downward journey marked by paradox. Augustine put it this way, Our Lord came down from life to suffer death. The bread came down to hunger. The way came down on the way to weariness. The fount came down to thirst. Jesus would be subject to every dimension of the human condition, would know pain, hunger, loss, opposition, would know betrayal and death. This is not the Christmas story that says there was no room for him in the inn, but it is clear there is no room for him in many hearts. He is unseen, unknown, rejected. I think it's interesting that this passage from John is placed in the lectionary near the commemoration of the first martyrs, as I've already mentioned. Maybe a coincidence, but it makes sense. The world that is the system opposed to God's reign, or at least indifferent to it, is not open to his life in light, grace, and truth. So why risk all of it? Why risk all of this rejection and suffering in the incarnation? Well, it's because of love. It's because of love. God's love for the world he made, for what was lost and ruined, what had been undone by sin. John gives us one of the best-loved and most memorized Bible verses. And I bet if I asked you guys right here, you could memorize it for me. You know what it is. It's about the love of God, but it's also about the incarnation. For God so loved the world, he sent. This is a theme that John carries forward into his letters. So in the prologue, we see Jesus as God in vulnerable human form walking with us in our situations, 
walking with us over the last year, with us in the joys and also the trials of our lives, with us with a love that defies our ability to comprehend it, inviting us to respond, and also going with us into a new year that we hope will be different than the last one. And that's where we see one more beautiful facet of truth in the prologue. And if you're trying to keep track, this is my third idea. God comes to us for our good. It's good news. It's not just an interesting idea, a theology kind of up there, out there. It's not for display. It's that we might once again have relationship with God. This is about new creation, about remaking, restoring. Yet to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace. Writing to the Galatians about the incarnation, Paul declares it's for the purpose of redemption, that we might be adopted as children. No longer a slave, but God's child, and since a child, also an heir. And this is the amazing love and goodness of God to reach out to us, to stoop down, to become like us in such a way that we might become like him. In writing on the incarnation in the 4th century, Athanasius, who, by the way, was a key figure in helping the church to work out, uh, work through these issues, he reflected on the why, the why of the incarnation. He wrote this. He said, why did he not manifest himself by means of other and nobler parts of creation, such as or moon, or stars, or fire, or air, mirror man? The answer is this. The Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering people. For one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been to just appear and dazzle everyone. But for him who came to heal and to teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him. For Christians, Christmas is actually not really about the birth of Jesus. I mean, that's a particular element of it. It's about God entering our world out of love so that we might be healed, that we might be redeemed and know him again and have peace with each other as it was in the beginning of things. I've shared this particular story before, but it fits so well here, I want to run it by all again. It was a number of years ago in the, I think it was the Union train station in Washington, D.C. And a man stepped off a train and he, just a normal looking kind of guy, had on a baseball cap, said Washington Nationals, and a violin case under his arm. And he sat up in the side of the foyer of this metro or train station and he opened up the violin case and he put it on the ground and he threw a couple dollars in it just to sort of get things going. And he played, and he played. Meantime, people are rushing to their trains, past him, in and out. Nobody's paying attention. Probably over a thousand people over just a few minutes of time. The place is crowded. They missed totally. They didn't recognize who this was. This was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest violinists in the world. They didn't recognize him playing there. They didn't recognize that he was playing a million-dollar Stradivarius violin. 
He was unseen, unknown. And then one woman stops in front of them. And you can see in her, if you watch the video, it's very clear. And, it, and you can look for this, on, it's on YouTube. It, it's clear she knows who he is. And she's just wrapped, you know, listening. And because she stops to listen, others start to stop to listen as well. And before long, there is kind of a small group, an audience for him and his playing. <laughs> because one person recognized him. This is our Christmas opportunity, isn't it? To recognize the one who was unseen, unknown. And to embrace him, to follow him, to believe in him. That by others also might come to know him and come to know his light and his life. I mean, this is the good news of Christmas. This is the good news of the Incarnation. Thanks be to God. Amen.